The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, everyone. That was awesome. Thanks, Rod. Now, if I were Ben or Brett, I might get something else from Rod, but we love each other. We're, we're brothers. I did, didn't I? That's it. We're very glad that all of you have decided to be with us this morning. Uh, Very happy that you're with us at the beginning of a new sermon series that I'm kicking off today. More on that in just a moment. If you're visiting us today, you are our honored guests. So welcome to the Springs. If you haven't already done so, we'd like for you to fill out one of the visitor cards. There's a couple ways you can do that. You can open up your Sunday sheet which in some places is known as the bulletin, but here we call it a Sunday sheet. And on the inside cover of that, I believe, there's a QR code. You can use your phone to scan that, and that'll take you to a form. You can fill all that out online. Uh, I promise we won't use any of that to to spam you or anything like that. We just want to get to know you a little bit, maybe know where you're from, what might have brought you to town to visit with us. And So if you do that, that'd be great. If you prefer to do it the old-fashioned way and actually write on a card, you can go over to the Welcome Center if you haven't done that, pick up one of those cards, fill it out, and there's a little box over there where you can place that card as well. So again, visitors, very happy to have you with us today. If you are visiting, you may not know who I am, and that's probably okay. Uh, And by the end of this, you may be happy you don't know who I am. Uh, No, my name is Jim Dvorak, and I'm not the normal preacher here, all right? That service is handled by Brett Vanderzee and Ben Langford, who are actually away on a mission trip. So praise God for the work that they're doing, and we'd ask that you be praying for their team and the work that they're doing. Uh, I do serve here, however, as one of the elders, or as my daughter likes to say, one of the old guys. It's kind of my own fault. I teach Greek and New Testament at Oklahoma Christian, and I once told her that that word for elder in Greek just means old guy. So guess what happened? It came back to bite me. Anyways, but knowing all that, if today's lesson turns out to sound more like a class than it does a sermon, you'll have some idea as why, why that might be the case. We are, as I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, kicking off a new sermon series today, and it is called The Spirit-Powered Life. The Spirit-Powered Life. I'm going to have to put these on. I didn't want to because I'll juggle. I guess that's what happens when you're one of the old guys, right? Spirit-Powered Life, and I did actually say it correctly now that I can see it. This is a study of the fruit, or as I like to call it, the produce of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in our lives, and it's what Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 5. Now, we've just finished the Spirit-powered church, which was a study in the book of Acts, and prior to that, we heard lessons from the Gospel of Luke in a series entitled The Spirit-Powered Gospel. Now, I hope that you are seeing the pattern in those series titles. It is intentional. We are a people of God and a people of His Spirit, and we seek to be led by His Spirit. More on that today in just a moment as well. One unique feature of this series that we're kicking off today is that the lessons are gonna be presented to us uh, by a variety of speakers. Uh, Those include, but are not limited to, Dr. Charles Ricks, who is the Dean of the College of Biblical Studies at Oklahoma Christian. He's my boss. That's not why we asked him to come. He's actually a really good speaker, but I just thought I'd mention that. 
Uh, we also have one of our beloved missionaries who will be home on furlough this summer, Don Rorcassi. He and Cindy will be here. Uh, and Don is going to uh, speak to us in this series as well. We have Dr. John DeSteiger, who's the president of Oklahoma Christian, who's, I guess, my big boss, if you want to look at it that way. Um, and so he's agreed to come and speak. And one of our own, Kelly Osborne, is also going to be presenting a lesson to us on one of these grains, if you will, that comprise the fruit of the Spirit or the produce of the Spirit. So, what that means is my job today, my task today, as Brett and Ben repeatedly emphasized over and over again, is to set it up, not mess it up. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Oh, yeah. They didn't actually use the word mess it up. That's kind of my own language. But that's what I was hearing, you know, as they were talking to me. Hey, set this thing up. So the whole purpose of today's lesson is to provide a kind of context or the context that's necessary for understanding that list of virtues in Galatians 5, and 23 that we call the fruit of the Spirit. So the next several minutes or so, or so, uh, we need to do a couple of things to kind of create that context. We need to consider the gist of the message of Galatians. So I want to try to help us. We can't cover the whole letter because you don't want to be here for hours. I wouldn't mind it, but you don't want to be here for hours. So we're going to cover kind of the gist of of the letter and follow a bit of the argument, set the stage for what Paul is doing with this letter. And then we'll zero in towards the end of the lesson today and talk about that text. Uh, in chapter five, just ahead of that list of produce of the Spirit. So we have some ground to cover, so you might want to have your Bibles open to Galatians, and we'll be in Galatians chapter one in just a minute, but I want to begin with a word of prayer. God, you truly are, as we often sing, an awesome God. And we are amazed that you have empowered us and called us by your Spirit to share in that awesomeness, to share in your ministry, your service, your service to others as we reflect the favor, the grace that you have given to us. We accept the grace that you have given to us. We accept that favor. We see you as our Father, as our patron, We acknowledge that you are the one who gives everything that we need for life, for godliness. It gives every bit of power and energy that we need to serve others in your name. And so we'd ask, Father, that you would continue by your spirit to fill us with a boldness to do so, with a boldness to speak out for Jesus Christ in our world, which often seems contrary to Jesus Christ. May we be people who are willing to wear your name boldly and proudly so that those around us will come to know you. And we pray and ask for a blessing on our lesson today and that the words that are said today are yours and not mine. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how sometimes you can simply tell by the way someone says something to you or in, begins a conversation with you that something is wrong, that there's a problem, 
and that that other person is not happy with you. You know what I mean? You can just sense it in the tone of voice, perhaps. Maybe an illustration will kind of help you. I can remember back when I was a freshman in college. I wasn't actually at Oklahoma Christian as a freshman. I attended Graceland College, which is now Graceland University in Lamoni, Iowa. I was on a, f- a football scholarship there, so I was a student athlete, as you can tell from this physique that stands before you. Yeah, right. I've been working a lot of table muscle, but that's about it. Uh, but the bottom line of that, what that meant for me was is that I wasn't in my room a lot. Uh, in fact, if I wasn't in a classroom almost, uh, I mean, until bedtime, I was either on the practice field or I was in the weight room. That's just what we did. Uh, day one, our coach basically said, hey, guess what your new job is? It sort of took the fun out of it, but we did it. So what I had to do was go get an answering machine. How many of you know what an answering machine is? Even my son raised his hand. This is, ah, this is awesome. Now, this dates me a little bit, right? Because this is before even voicemail, which is way before email, which is way, way before texting, right? So yeah, I mean, I had a phone line, just a good old-fashioned phone line. It plugged in the back of this machine, and then the phone plugged into it so that after a certain number of rings, like voicemail, it would pick up, it would give a greeting, and the person could leave a message for me. Well, because I wasn't in my room a lot, and my mom liked to call a lot to make sure I was doing what I was supposed to be doing as a freshman, um, she would have to leave an answer or a message on that answering machine. Now, often those messages began something like, Hi, Jim. It's your mom. I hope your week's going well. Give us a call later tonight to tell us about how your day's going or about how your week's going. But occasionally, maybe more than occasionally, but occasionally, the message would simply be, Jim, this is your mother. Plus tonight. Or even sometimes, and this is the one you really dreaded, Jim, this is your mother. You need to call and speak to your father. (laughs) Uh, It's the uh uh-oh moment, right? And you could sense just in the way that that message came across that, oh, something isn't right, and mom and or dad are not happy about what's going on. You could spot it in the tone of voice. But did you know that you can spot that even in written text as well, if you're paying attention? And you kind of got to do a little bit of comparative work, maybe across a couple of letters, like we're going to do with Paul this morning, to be able to see it. But it does happen, and you can see it. And it happens, actually, in the letter written to the Galatians. Now, what I'm going to do is just read a little bit of a snippet from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, and you just listen to that, and then we're going to look at the beginning of Galatians, and we'll see if you notice the difference. So Paul writes, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, from Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace that God uh, has given to you in Christ Jesus, for you were made rich in every way, in all of your speech and every kind of knowledge, just as the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you, so that you aren't lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will strengthen you to the very end. 
so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you get here a pretty standard letter opening. A sender from Paul and then his, any writing companions that he may have with him. An addressee to the church that is in Corinth. And then a bunch of nice sounding, we call it philophrenetic language, right? It's happy handshake language that you get around this. To the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified and so on. And then some well-wishing, grace and peace to you from God our Father and so on. And then you get a prayer of thanksgiving and that thanksgiving is on behalf of those that he is writing to. I thank my God always for you because of what God has done in you, X, Y, and Z. Now look at the letter to Galatians. Sender, from Paul, an apostle, not from men nor by human agency, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches at Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God forever and Father to whom be uh, glory forever and ever, amen. What's different? What's missing? It's shorter, right, Dan? What's missing is there's no prayer of thanksgiving in this letter. In fact, what you get right after the very beginning of this, the, the addressees and the, and the few well wishes, he goes straight into the body of the letter. And you know what he starts the body of the letter with? Rather jolting language. I am shocked. I am astonished, befuddled, confused, well, what is it that got Paul all in a tizzy? Why is he shocked? Why is he stunned? Let's listen to what he says, verses six and seven. He says, I'm stunned because so quickly, or perhaps so readily, you are turning away from the one who called you in grace unto a completely different gospel. A quote-unquote gospel it's not even similar to the one that you heard from me. It's not even in the same ballpark. He actually uses two different Greek words there for other. One is other of a different kind, a completely different gospel, and then he says it's not, it's not a different one as in, in the same ballpark, one of the same kind. It is completely different. He goes on to say only there are some who are intimidating you and wanting to change the good news or change the gospel about the Messiah. So the problem here that's introduced to us at the very beginning in this letter, in that tone of voice that clearly indicates something isn't right and Paul's not very pleased about it, it's a two-pronged problem. He says there are some people who are intimidating the Galatians and they want to change the gospel message about Jesus Christ. And number two, the Galatians are buying it. They're believing it. Now, you might ask, and it's a good question to ask, who are these intimidators? Who are these people who want to change the gospel? 
Now, there's a long stretch of text in the letter that we could read to talk about this, but I'm going to zero in on this exemplum, this example story that Paul gives about a time when he opposed Cephas, as he calls him, Peter, to his face. It's found in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14, because I think that story actually gives us a pretty good idea of what the Galatians are up against, uh, even from the example of the story. As Paul tells that story, Peter, whom again he calls Cephas, had withdrawn from table fellowship with any non-Judean Jesus followers. Did you hear me? These are not external Judeans, Jewish people coming in trying to mess things up. There is a group that is meeting with these Galatians that believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're after something a little bit more here. They want something a little bit more. That'll become clearer as we go, I hope. He'd withdrawn, Peter had withdrawn from table fellowship with these, with non-Judean Jesus followers because he'd been intimidated by some of the people who had come from James, the text says. He feared the circumcision faction or group. But when Paul saw this happen, he challenged Peter with a rather sobering question. And he believed that that question also applied to the current situation that the Galatian believers were facing. It goes like this. If you, Peter, although being a Judean, are living like a non-Judean and not like a Judean, how is it that you can compel those non-Judeans to act like Judeans? Did you follow that? So you are by birth someone who is a Judean, and then there are others who are by birth not, right? And so you have begun to associate with those who are not, but when these others came, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I gotta go back over here. You start acting like us. And Paul says that doesn't make any sense. And therein lies the the change that they wanna make to the gospel. It suggests that the intimidators that, that Paul is writing about here were Judean Jesus followers who wished to compel all other Jesus followers, Judean and non-Judean alike, to adopt a quote-unquote gospel that required adherence to Judean custom, also known as law, in addition to reliance upon the faithfulness of the Messiah, in addition to the actual good news. In other words, law, they would say, must be part of the gospel so that everybody can live to or for God. Because it was believed by these um, Judaizers, as they're called, that you had to do law in order to live for God. But Paul's gonna come back on that in just a minute. My question is, as I'm reading through this, is pretty much always, why would anybody wanna do that, (laughs) right? Why would anyone want to do that? And I think the answer to this question lies in verses 15 to 21 of chapter 2. By the way, I think verses 15 to 21 in chapter 2 are actually part of Paul's response to Cephas. Most English versions will close with quotation marks, I think wrongly, at the end of the question in verse 14. I think the statement actually goes further down, clear down through verse 21. And Paul says, we, i.e. Peter and Paul, are Judeans by birth. We're not sinners from the non-Judeans. In other words, we were born into a time and a place and a custom where we had the law. They weren't, so that's their problem. 
right? But then he reminds Peter, verse 16, but knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, we also, you and I, Peter, we also believed in the Messiah Jesus so that we would be justified by the faithfulness of the Messiah and not by works of law. Verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified by the Messiah, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ thus an administrator, an agent of sin? Absolutely not. If I build again what things I've torn down, then I demonstrate myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. Oh, listen to this. For through the law, there is a purpose for the law. Paul understands that there is a proper perspective to have of the law, and he begins to give it to us here. Through the law, I died to the law so that uh, I might live for God. I'm not gonna try to live for God by the law. I'm gonna live for God because I've set that law aside, died to that law, right? More on that in a minute. Verse 20, sorry, verse 19. Uh, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I am crucified with Christ, and there's the death. I am crucified with the Messiah, and I live no longer. But the Messiah lives in me. And that which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and handed himself over on my behalf. I do not reject the grace of God. I do not reject the favor of God. For if justification is through the law, then the Messiah died for nothing. Now, I don't want you to miss the question that's stated in verse 17. I paused on it just a moment, but listen to it again. But if while seeking to be justified by the Messiah, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ thus an administrator or a minister of sin? And he answers, absolutely not. I think in this question we see the voice or hear the voice of the Judean intimidators. This language of if we ourselves are found to be sinners means if we no longer try to live by law and as a result end up in the same boat as those non-Judeans who grew up without the law, you hear that? If we set the law aside, then that really makes us no better than people who didn't have it to begin with, sinners from the nations. Follow the logic here. The intimidators appear to hold the point of view that if Jesus' followers don't adhere to and don't follow the law, then there's not gonna be any restraints. There'll be no way to know what's good. There's no way to know what's right, what's appropriate, what's good, God-pleasing behavior, how to live for God because they believe that they could live for God on the basis of law. And so they end up thinking that, well, if we get rid of law, we're gonna sin more and more so that sin will abound, and then we're all gonna end up doomed, and what's worse, that makes Jesus look like an agent and a promoter of sin. But Paul's response is, I do not think it works the way you think it works. With pun on works. You can laugh at it later, it's okay. Thanks, Mike. You see, law for Paul can only point out sin, right? 
That's its natural function. That's what, that's what it does. It points out sin. And as a result, it can only condemn. It can only bring death. There's no way to live for or to the law as the Judean intimidators appear to argue. So Paul says, and this is actually his positive view of the law's purpose, that one, listen, this just blows me away. One must accept the death penalty. One needs to accept that that's what law does. It exposes sinfulness in our lives. It exposes wrongdoing. It exposes all all of these things. And so it should result in death. That's what it does. We need to accept that death penalty that the law brings. And here's the catch language, the key language. Be crucified with Christ. Do you hear it? If law is doing what law is supposed to do, it leads to death. Paul's like, yeah, that's what it does. But we're not finished there. He said, align yourself with Christ, with his crucifixion. Die with Christ so that, just as God raised him from the dead, you too might have life with him and experience the grace and experience the favor of God. In other words, it's only when you are aligned with Christ and his crucifixion crucifixion and resurrection that you can live for anything or anyone and it is for God. Not for law but for God. Now the intimidators might well respond again and ask a few questions. If that's the case then how do we, how do we keep from doing wrong or bad things? If believers in Jesus are liberated from law would, not that, would that mean that not uh, all behaviors are somehow made natural and and okay, neutral perhaps? Or do believers avoid, how do believers avoid living by the flesh? How do believers know what is good and right and appropriate God-pleasing behavior? And here we are on the springboard, on the diving board, getting a little bit of momentum, getting ready to dive into the spirit-powered life, the, the fruit or the produce of the Spirit in Galatians chapter five. Because Paul, that's where Paul answers these questions. Look at Galatians five verse one. Christ freed you for freedom. Therefore stand firm and and don't become subject again to that yoke of slavery, i.e. slavery to the law that only brings death. Accept and enjoy the freedom that comes with and the free forgiveness that comes with dying with Christ. In chapter five, verse 13, the first part of that verse, he says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Now, we might ask, okay, Paul, but again, if we're not bound to the law, then are there any restraints? How do we know what we're supposed to do, not supposed to do? Because for so long, if you live by law, that's how you decide these things, right? What's gonna hinder us from just doing whatever it is that we desire? We need to understand an important social and cultural point here that will help us to read Galatians 5 correctly. Freedom in the New Testament is is very different than freedom as we understand it in the U.S. context. They don't mean the same thing at all. In fact, a lot of bad theology stems from equating those two things. You see, in the U.S., we tend to think of freedom primarily in terms of the removal of obstacles 
the removal of constraints, the removal of restraints, particularly from those obstacles or constraints that stand in the way of the Almighty's success and achievement or one's personal or social self-realization. Some commentators on Galatians refer to this, and those of you who have spent time studying Galatians for many years will recognize this word. They'll call it libertinism. Taking a little too much advantage of the freedom. But in the New Testament, particularly in the Pauline corpus, which is where the language of freedom appears almost exclusively in the New Testament, the notion of freedom is anchored in the Exodus. So you need to put your thinking caps on and think back to the Exodus for a moment. You remember the story how the people were enslaved under Pharaoh and God sends Moses to bring them out and he asks the Pharaoh, God through Moses asks the Pharaoh to let his people go so that they may do what? Worship me in the wilderness, right? The Exodus event and this is where we sometimes get a little bit confused. The Exodus event was not simply a liberation from Pharaoh so that the people could go and, and do whatever, want, whatever they wanted as they pleased. In fact, as one New Testament scholar puts this, as any Judean that was conversant with Torah knew, the Exodus was not so much a liberation as an acquisition by a new owner who exercised dominion, a new dominion. You see, in the ancient world and in the first century when this was being written, freedom was not just freedom from and then you're just left out there. It was freedom from and freedom for or to. And in the case of Galatians, it's freedom from this death of law and freedom to life in Christ so that you might live for God and for his purposes. The freedom that Paul proclaims here in Galatians is not merely freedom from obstacles, some sort of self-realization or achievement or success, whatever that may look like, but for freedom to serve the new master, namely God, and what is the number one requirement of service? Love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says in Galatians 5.16, I say live by the Spirit. Or put differently, live to or for God and fulfill the law of Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or more definitive, in more definitive terms, attach yourself to your fellow believers as if they were your blood kin. And then treat them as blood kin. See, what was happening is these, these people stirring up problems, these intimidators, were end up splitting this group, and Paul hates division. So part of getting them back together is the law of Christ, loving your brothers and sisters. Okay, Paul, how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, he might answer, what sort of fruit is being produced in your life? What sort of produce do you have in your life? Is it spirit, of the spirit, or is it of the flesh? How do we know? What are the telltale signs? And here we are at Galatians 5, 17 to 21. For the flesh desires against the spirit, but the spirit desires against the flesh. What I'm saying is that these things oppose one another. And the result of this, the consequence of this, is that you cannot make these things, i.e. flesh and spirit, 
whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're no longer under law. However, verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are obvious. They're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, complete removal of restraints, which is itself a, a deed of the flesh. Um, your older versions might translate that licentiousness. Remember that word? Getting rid of all the restraints and constraints. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, resentment, rage, selfish ambitions, all about self. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, about which things I'm warning you, just as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Two things need to be pointed out here. And the first is a major point. Because flesh and spirit are opposed to one another, one cannot logically try to to make things that are of flesh into things that are of spirit. They also can't make things that are of spirit into things that are of flesh. Put differently, one cannot simply recast sinful deeds or even spiritual deeds as the opposite of what they are. They oppose one another. Paul flat out says you can't make these things, flesh and spirit, whatever you want. This is supported by the way that he begins the vice list. The deeds of the flesh are obvious. Second, note that the deeds of the flesh, the vices that he lists here, just before the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, they're all things that actually the law itself condemns. Hmm. Most, if not all, of these can be found in the holiness codes of Leviticus. And that may seem counterintuitive to Paul's argument, but it's really not. It's actually an appropriate understanding of what the law does. He has argued that the law condemns, that the law brings death. So it would be true that if one's life is characterized by the deeds of the flesh that are listed here, then one is obviously not led by the Spirit and would still then be under law and would not therefore inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 24 comes up. Those who are of the Messiah, Jesus, have crucified. And there's that language again. You have died. You've accepted that death penalty. Died a crucifixion with Christ. And you've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so you will not exhibit the deeds of the flesh. And they also will not, also you won't try to recast them as deeds of the, of, or fruits of the Spirit. So now we have the backdrop. We have a backdrop for understanding the produce or the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness. That's a fun one, meekness, self-control. Against such thing, Paul says, there's no law. The law doesn't apply. So what's the good news here? What's the good news we're set up for in the fruit of the Spirit? For one, it puts things in proper perspective. Law points out sin as it should, but it is not what brings life. Jesus brings life. But you have to die first. You have to die with Christ. You need to be crucified with Christ and join with him in that way so that God can raise you from the dead just like he raised Jesus from the dead. 
And then our vision will be fixed on the Spirit. Our vision will be fixed on being led by the Spirit to live lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. For against such things,